Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Bruce Willis pets 12 monkeys and a Hudson Hawk. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and welcome to Double Edge Double Bill. Get together, have a few laughs. And I am Thomas Mariani here swinging on a star. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. That means I'm Danny Aiello. Hey, can you fucking believe it? <laughs> hey, hey, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> now let's do something cartoony. <laughs> right after the, the, all that swearing. But welcome everybody, yes, to the Double-Edged Double Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I uh, cover a double feature we pick at the end of the previous episode based around a certain topic. And uh, we are here today for a bit of, you know, an unfortunate reason given um, Bruce Willis is our subject for today. And um, it's related to the fact that he was recently uh, announced as uh, he's going to be retiring from acting because he was diagnosed with aphasia, which is a form of this like memory loss disease of sorts that uh, basically has this inability for him to like speak and stuff like that or memorize lines, which obviously would be unfortunately impactful for his acting career. And, um, you know, we said this at the end of the last episode, but it's a real... Real shame hearing about that and puts some of his more recent films in an unfortunate light. Then it's just like this guy who was one of the most charismatic movie stars at a certain point. Um, it, it's such a shame that it happened to him. Yeah, yeah. You never want to see someone go out on, on terms they can't control. And I mean, Bruce Willis is, you know, definitely of my generation and even yours, one of the biggest movie stars of all time. I've made my cracks about his straight-to-DVD movies and stuff like that. You know, I, I, of course, in hindsight, you're like, ah, oh, fuck. You know, but then again, we didn't know. No. Um, I, I do feel really bad for him and his family. Um, and I just, you know, of course, wish them all the best. And hopefully it's, it's something that they are able to at least deal with so he's at least comfortable. Right, yeah, so of course, hope that him and his family have, like, the most comfortable retirement they could possibly have, given that unfortunate diagnosis. But we did want to definitely at least celebrate his career, and when we do this show, obviously, where we cover a good and a bad pick, we definitely are still overall celebrating a person we cover, especially even in this case, where it's just like, Bruce Willis, you know, had such a fascinating career where he was mostly in comedic stuff, particularly, like, he got his big start with Moonlighting, the TV show, which I haven't seen much of except clips but uh that was basically his big start and then when he was cast in die hard it felt like such a weird thing apparently at the time which is like oh wait the guy from moonlighting is an action star how's this gonna work at all and his john mcclain character has been cited as kind of like the beginning of the end for like the old, like action hero of that 80s which was more of like arnold schwarzenegger Sylvester stallone people we've done uh, you know, episodes about uh, the whole, as I like to call them, of course, the Planet Hollywood trio. But that sort of like big muscle bound 
a guy that we would have gotten in like the previous like Terminator era and all this other stuff kind of stopped happening once Bruce Willis ended up being like, oh, he's like a normal guy trapped in the wrong situation at the wrong time, but gets out of a kind of thing that completely changed the action landscape in the 90s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we still got, you know, more of the Schwarzeneggers, more of the Stallones. Just Bruce Willis brought in an, another tangible option. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly think action movies are all the better for that. And because of that, I mean, the thing is, you know, yeah, of course, you got to also give it up to Tyrannin and Al Rickman and everybody else who made Die Hard so successful. But, I mean, Bruce Willis really just as an entity and as a person and as even someone with his height stature and everything else really changed the gamer for what an attainable action hero could be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why Die Hard is still such an important movie and still a great movie. I'd argue against some of those other action star movies, vehicles that we had in the 80s. Die Hard is one of the ones that still really, really holds up. Yeah, pretty much a perfect movie, honestly. And it's also so weird given like how massive a star he became. The first two Die Hard movies and also around that same time he did the first two Look Who's Talking movies, which was the first point i probably saw him in was like the fucking look who's talking movies where he voices a baby combined those four movies made 800 million fucking dollars at the box office in the late 80s early 90s that's insane <laughs> it's pretty good chunk of change yeah but uh, what was the first thing you saw willis and what was the first time you really caught your radar was it die hard or was it something else i mean i knew of die hard of course i mean but oh probably honestly probably the same as you probably look who's talking uh, yeah. at least that i can remember where they were like that's the guy from die hard i'm like what like so yeah probably look who's talking you know and not for nothing too because it is a great great vocal performance yes um you know to make up for the john travolta christie alley love story that's so believable oh yeah, so that's interesting great. with it yeah. right oh, don't, don't forget about the george siegel christie alley love story too Oh, that's true, right. Yes, that's the whole impetus. And then, of course, look who's talking to. It's like, oh, let's add Roseanne Barr. Oh, yeah. Yes. But, yeah, I, I would say it was probably look who's talking, but then I definitely very quickly after that had seen, like, a Die Hard or even one of the movies we're talking about today. Basically, those 90s-era movies. And what was so interesting about Bruce Willis was, like, despite the fact that he was technically more, like, attainable as an action star because he wasn't, like, the big bus Schwarzenegger guy, at the same time, he exuded such a confidence that you just rarely find in movie stars. Like, in a modern landscape where, like, we don't really have as many, like, new movie stars, going back to, like, Willis and Die Hard, it's just like, oh, you immediately see, like, this is a persona being born, not just, like, John McClane, the character, who would go on his other Die Hard movies, but specifically... That persona of the Bruce Willis guy where he's got his quips and stuff, but it feels so effortlessly charming that you're just like, man, this this guy just, despite the fact that he feels like he could be real, also is so otherworldly at the same time. He has, like, such a great mix where it all feels so natural. Yeah, I, oh yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I, I think Bruce Willis is one of the, not the last, but one of the last, like, sort of homegrown, let's make this guy a big fucking star let's put him out there for everyone to do it and he had the capability to, to handle the weight we see it tried all the time and usually it sort of falls flat but bruce willis absolutely exuded not only the charisma but the sort of cockiness arrogance too where it was like i'm here fucking deal with it and we as a nation said 
yes to Bruno. Well, no, we didn't say yes to Bruno. We said yes. <laughs> That's a Bruno, no other stuff. It's also interesting given the fact that I think he got sort of plugged into being an action star. But really, I think what was shown off is like when Bruce Willis was on, he could be on not just as like an action star, but also very funny comedically when he was given the right material. And also a really genuinely great dramatic actor. Like we've talked about Unbreakable on the show, but Unbreakable and Sixth Sense are like genuinely great dramatic performances from him. And he doesn't even do a lot. He just does like such great subtle acting in those movies. I agree. And I, I think one of our movies that we're going to talk about tonight definitely was sort of one of the first gleams that like, oh, wait, maybe he's got a little bit more in the tank instead of just being, you know, the everyman action star or the sort of cocky neighbor who was kind of funny or the the womanizer. Like just in the two movies you mentioned, they're powerhouse performances by a director who I'd argue those are his two finest films as well. Uh, and he had Bruce Willis with him doing them. And it, it's just, yeah, that guy had, you know, whatever you've heard about him as far as his onset personality or how problematic he could be, mainly from Kevin Smith, you hear this stuff. And, you know, I believe it. I, I don't doubt it. I, I mean, the guy was the biggest star in the world, but he also could back it up. Yeah, I mean, th- that's also another factor. It's even long before, like, the recent unfortunate stuff with the straight video movies, he was also kind of famous as, like, an on-set personality, where even long before Cop Out, there was, like, the stuff with Bonfire and the Vanities and, and shit like that, where he, there's a whole book just detailing the fact that after Die Hard, he had the biggest ego uh, which, like you mentioned, at the same time, he could back up when he really wanted to. There was even a point, meaningly, like, you know, with, like, a cop-out, certain roles like that, where you can tell there are points where he didn't necessarily want to be on set, and you can kind of tell um, in lesser movies, but when he was really on game, even as late as, like, 2012 or so, he was still doing, like, phenomenal work when he really wanted to. And we'll talk about a lot of those today, but we're talking about two ones specifically from his heyday, because uh, we picked at the end of our last episode a good and a bad feature. And so we'll be talking about uh, the good feature, which was one of your two choices, Adam, of 12 Monkeys, and uh, then my bad feature, uh, which was Hudson Hawk. But first, let's talk about Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys? I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. We're all monkeys. The thing mutates. We live underground. They're watching you. Twelve Monkeys came out December 29th, 1995, from director Terry Gilliam, who we've talked about on the show previously, uh, from a script from uh, the couple screenwriting duo of David and Jeanette Peoples, based on the French short film La Jetée, which I actually just watched for the first time. Are you aware of the source material and all that and what it is? Nope. Not a bit. Well, it's basically this, like, French short film that's only about, like, 30 minutes long, but it details, like, the basic structure of this entire story with, like, the horrible event that happens at the beginning that 
gets everybody to go underground, and then they try and transport a guy to the future, where he runs into this woman who we remember from this, like, horrible incident, like, at an airport and all this other stuff. So it is the outline for this movie, basically, that they took a lot of elements from, but added other flourishes, as Bruce Willis plays James Cole, who is this guy who, like, is living in what seems to be, like, the uh, 2030s, I believe, uh, after the world has been ravaged by a virus, and uh, he is assigned by these mysterious scientist characters who are sort of the leaders of the future to go back in time and find out why the virus is spread. Basically, like, track the clues as to what happened with the virus. And when he goes back to the past, uh, he ends up being uh, diagnosed as some sort of uh, mentally unstable person. So he's put into an asylum. And he has interactions with both the psychiatrist, played by Madeline Stowe, who takes an inkling and interest into him. And also uh, Brad Pitt, who plays this fascinating, very uh, over-the-top character who ends up uh, meaning a lot more to... Cole's journey as he goes along in the past. And Adam, this is one of your choices. And uh, why did you uh, think this was a good example of Willis in particular? Uh, well, first of all, it's the, I, I want to say this might be my first, at least that I knew of Gilliam film. I, there's something about this movie. When I first saw it, I was like, what is this? This is unlike anything I've ever seen. And a big part of that is Bruce Willis's performance. He is kind of unlike anything he's ever done before in this. He, he plays uh you know incredibly vulnerable physically and sort of mentally you don't know what's going on with him he's he's sort of the unreliable narrator of the movie and it's it's a fucking just a fantastic fascinating performance so not only do you get the times where he's just mentally uh self-destructing and is wounded and he's like an caged animal but then you get the scenes like with Madeline Stowe in the apartment where he protects her from the pimp. And he's genuinely terrifying. Like genuinely terrifying. He he plays this sort of you feel bad for him and like this poor guy stressing his environment, but at the same time, he's dangerous and he's unhinged and he's just unpredictable in every way. And he's just gives such an amazing performance. You know, just to even highlight one moment when uh, they're in the car and the song on the radio comes on. He's oh God, can you turn that up, please? Yes, just like that. That's nice. Thank you. And he's just his eyes are welled with tears. And it's just it's a beautiful moment. It's Blueberry Hill. And it's just a great, great scene. And you know, not to detract from Bruce Willis, because he is great, but also probably my favorite man on Stowe. And definitely one of the first times uh, with Brad Pitt where people are like, oh, he can do a lot more stuff than we give him credit for. He's not just the handsome lead. Like, this guy is willing to go for it. And it's a fantastic performance for Brad Pitt as well. I just think this is such a good, dirty, down-to-earth, grimy sci-fi. And it is anchored by Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis absolutely carries the movie. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Uh, this was, I don't think, my first Terry Gilliam film, but this was definitely around the same time I saw, like, Adventures of Baron Munchausen and stuff like that. But what's so interesting is this is definitely the most mainstream movie Terry Gilliam ever made, despite the fact that it has a lot of his eccentricities, like, particularly the stuff in the future with the scientist characters and, like, the big orb that goes in front of Bruce Willis and shit. Like, that feels very much like the production design stuff of Terry Gilliam. But I agree there's much more of, like, an emotional fascination that this movie has with its characters I don't think is always present in Gilliam movies that can be like very over-designed. This one feels definitely more like a human story, but still has some of those things like you aren't sure 
the first time watching it, like, is Bruce Willis actually from the future, or are these weird delusions that he has? It's such a fascinating line that it toes between those two things, and you're really caught up in that weird, fascinating story that it's telling. And I, I think I agree. It's because Willis is so, like, vulnerable. Like, particularly, my favorite example of that is when he first is seen in the past, in 1990, Madeline Stowe visits him, and the way that he's, like, drooling, and he's, like, going back and forth, it is such a great turn where it feels like either he's going through some weird post-time travel, like, stasis point and he isn't quite all there or he does have some sort of actual mental illness that he can't really affect i think it's such a great performance from willis because you're on that toe like the entire movie but at the same time you never lack some kind of like sympathy or empathy for him it's just like a guy who either way is completely lost and i think willis does such a great job of that in a way that like you said it's so unlike any of the performances he had done previously because it's not the the cocky dude or the funny guy it is like a very very unfortunately emotionally disturbed person to some degree whether it's from suffering through all the horrible shit of the future or just the awful stuff that he can't control about his mind it's a really nuanced performance from him yeah, I'd say one of his most nuanced. I mean, even to date, um, there's just a lot there to it. Talk about a bleak sort of look into the future and even modern day times. This movie, there's say what you will about this movie. Yeah, it's a sci-fi and it is, but it's a very bleak, bleak film. You know, and, and there is a lot of is this really happening? Is this not? It, it just it kind of puts you all over the map with it. But you know, it's also it is a redemption story for James Cole, but at the same time, it's also sort of a redemption story for mankind and society as a whole. I mean, yeah, it's a fan sort of fantastical sci-fi story, but again, much like, you know, other movies we've talked about recently, it, it is a, a sort of story that's been told a hundred times, but told through this very unique and different way. A lot of people are like, Oh, is he telling the truth? Is he not? Is he this? Is it all in his delusions? I mean, maybe, but to me, I think the solidifying fact is, you know, the bullet in the picture. Like, like, oh, no, mm-hmm. this dude has been through some shit and been around. It, it's such a, you know, time travel's been done how many times, but never done in this really dirty, gross sort of way. And it's just, it's such a weird view on what the future could be and what could potentially happen to mankind if something unpredicted like a virus, oh, fuck, but if something unpredicted <laughs> like a virus sort of took over. You know what would ultimately happen to us. This is the first time I watched it since COVID happened at all. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it was a bit interesting. But <laughs> I, to, to go to that, I love the depiction of the future where, like I said, there's some of that Gilliam style, but even just that whole sequence where he's going out into the um, abandoned New York City covered in snow, and he's in that like great suit that looks all weird, but also like the when the animals show up and just seeing the ruins of society. It's such a great way of like doing something. We've seen that in other movies about like, oh the oh no, everything is gone here, but also introducing some of these locations stuff to where like when he's walking around New York City near the end of the movie, it like really hits you like, oh fuck, he's in this place again. And he's going around like this. And even when like you're I agree that like the bullet and some of the other stuff does confirm that he's from the future. But there is still so much ambiguity as it goes along about even, like, the ending. About, like, how much, like, oh, is this, like, an upsetting ending? Or is this actually somewhat a hopeful ending? It leaves, like, enough ambiguity there to work, depending on how you think about it. But there's some other people, like you mentioned. Like, I agree. I think I love Madeline Stowe in this movie. Um, I think she does a great job of at least hinting a lot at the fascination with Willis throughout all this and the growing interest in, like, oh, my God, maybe he is from the future. Kind of, like, doubting herself about that. 
I will say my one issue with the movie is that um, they do try and make it a bit more of like a love story in a way that I don't think works particularly. Like, I wish they did not have the kiss that briefly happens there in the airport. 8,100,000%. Yes, thank you. Right, that, that's yeah. the one thing. Just like, this could have worked so much better. It's just like a, there is a fascination. There is a love for him in terms of like, oh my God, I don't want you to be hurt because you're actually this person that's been traveling around. I can't see this happening to you. But the fact that they go full on with like the vertigo, like even implications of it, I just feel like that's not necessary and feels like I don't believe that she would go to that point of loving this guy after all this happened. No, no, me neither at all. Uh, and you know, also I want to throw out there, playing kind of against type for him just because of how his size and everything but how good is david morse in this oh my god well I, that's what's so fascinating in contrast to like the brad pitt character because brad pitt is this like very over-the-top manic character who's like like you mentioned like very different from like what he had done like th- this is not too long after like Thelma and louise had come out right. like when they cast him but then interestingly after this had been filmed they had already uh, had a uh, legends of the fall and also seven had come out yeah, I want to say right before this was a river runs through it. Mm-hmm. I think was a big one right before this. So it was like, you know, you see Brad Pitt in the previews and he's got the the contact in to give him the, the sort of off-kilter eye. And he's going full 10 constantly this whole movie. Like Brad Pitt is just in it to win it. And it's crazy. I, I, I honestly think like this movie really sort of pushed him into the upper echelon of like, oh, we can cast him for other things. Right down to he got his first Oscar nomination for this movie for Best right. Supporting Actor. Deserved. Deserved. Right, and it works so well because you think like, oh, is this actually a guy with some mental disorder? Is it like trying to almost make fun of him? There's a bit of that worry there. And then it's like, oh no, he's a rich asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's a spoiled fucking brat. Right, who is trying to just basically like cause chaos. Fuck over his father. Right, to, to, well, to fuck over his father, that's true. Christopher Plummer, wonderfully playing right. a rich smarmy asshole, as he always did. Such yeah, so great at that. Um, but I just love also the, the fact that he is so over the top. It's such a great contrast to the actual threat being David Morris, where, like, the first time he's introduced, I love that scene at, like, the big presentation from Adeline Stowe, where he's just there in his outfit, and you mean, like, oh, I recognize it from the dreams that Bruce Willis has had. But then when he goes up to get the book signed by Madeline Stowe, he's just like, oh, I, I really love what you were doing. And you, you know, this is research about, like, people have been saying things about the apocalypse and all this other stuff, and she just dismisses him. Yeah, and the way he really. lingers there. Oh, I know. It's creepy. It's so creepy. <laughs> yeah, perhaps you'd be interested in my own independent studies, where I've learned that. And she's like, okay, thank you. It's cited other books. Well, I've also learned that the apocalypse is not only going to come in threes. Because oh, he's a giant, too. Yes. In other David Moore's things, he is like often like very much barking because he takes advantage of his size. Here he's so much more meek, but so much more unsettling. I think it's like particularly his rosy cheeks in this. Like He has like those like apple cheeks. That are so unnerving when he's smiling. The red hair. Yes. And everything, the ponytail. Like, it's, just, it's such a weird off-kilter look for him. And it works phenomenally. That's the one thing about this movie. I, I you know, I, as I'm sure, you know, people have gleamed, I'm a big proponent on big, uh, good ensemble films. And this movie has, it's, it's top-notch acting from top to bottom. I don't think there's a weak part in this movie. I think everybody is really on their game. I mean, it's kind of remarkable, especially in this type of movie, this weird, weird movie. 
even like I didn't recognize this until this watch. I'm like, oh my god, fucking Frank Gorshin is the main doctor at the asylum, the yep. fucking Riddler himself. <laughs> and he's yeah. great. He's like underplaying it and he's really good at it. Or like all of the different scientists in the future. They just pick like the perfect people to play. Like particularly uh Carol Florence is like the main one who shows up at the end of the movie as well. I just love like she immediately has this like demeanor of like, I am a bureaucratic asshole who just wants to keep my particular station of power and you're threatening that by trying to do whatever the fuck you're doing in the future bad call that's a very bad boy basically like a very stern authority figure the gilliam knows how to pick people for their looks in particular with any of these different actors they just and it helps also that they are naturally good performers even down to fucking christopher maloney as the asshole lieutenant despite even the terrible wig back when that dude was trying to hide his balding <laughs> Such a bad wig. In complete contrast, we should mention this is the first fully bald and shaved Willis. And it would yep. be the look he would have pretty much like after this, he would have like some hair, right? But like, I think what it's around like probably like Unbreakable was the first like from where he's bald the whole time afterward, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. And I want to say Unbreakable might be, I mean, I'm sure there was one or two afterwards where he had hair, but right. I think Unbreakable was like, oh, this is just what Bruce Willis looks like now. Yeah, right. The, the look he would really have. And it's a wonderful look here, especially because it's not just even that he's bald, but he's like completely hairless. Like even when you see him naked, he's just like, there's no body hair on him whatsoever. There's no, he, there's no body hair. There's right. no body hair. And, and another thing too, that they really do well, and he really plays off well in this, you know, and it's something they do in a lot of movies and, and with Bruce Willis gets it a lot too, in particular, but he plays off every injury he receives in this movie. Yes. That was the big thing that worked about Die Hard, was that, like when he got hurt in yeah. the glass and all that other stuff. Yeah, limping or holding his shoulder, adjusting his jaw, his nose, repeatedly. I mean, how many times is Malin so basically carrying into a room? Like, he's constantly fucked up and beat up. And right. he, he just really sells it. It's really impressive. And the big strength is anytime it veers into almost what could be over-the-top action territory, um, it's unnerving, particularly for Madeline Stowe. Like, the sequence where they go to the one, like, empty theater and the homeless guys try and jump them. And Bruce Willis, like, fucking murders that guy. And she is upset, like, oh, my God, what the fuck are you doing? This is terrible. Like, this is horrible. What are you doing here? You've killed this man. Like, they fully emphasize, like, look, this, it's not pretty. This is not, like, fun. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, when he cuts his own fucking teeth out in front of the pimp. Yeah, that's a great shot, too. The guy in the bathroom, like, what the fuck are you doing? What the fuck is wrong with you, man? (laughs) Like, yeah, dude. It's fucking violent, and it's it's unnerving, but the the thing that Gilliam does really well in that scene, and even where he's beating up the homeless guy in particular, you don't really see the gore, the effect of it. You get the reaction Mm -hmm. of the other people, and it sells it so much more. Right, particularly there's a bit when they're going around, he's like spitting up blood after that happens in New York, and everyone's like, ugh, ugh, yeah. God. Yeah. Right. And I also love just even the, the element of like how their actions end up playing. Like, this is a great example of a time travel movie where like the person travels to, to the past and ends up affecting the future. It does such a great job of like putting those uh, pieces into the puzzle perfectly, like the answering machine bit with Matt oh, Stowe. Yeah. Great bit. And, and even the realization where like he says the answering machine thing back to her and realize like oh my god I affected all of this this is just totally me of like everything's just like falling into place because we did it but it's such a f- smartly written screenplay at the same time that it's like a great visual movie and all this other stuff all of the pieces fit perfectly for like one of these time travel things and it doesn't over explain it either just like hey we can travel right. on time whatever doesn't matter and it doesn't need to right you know it, it just works as it is it's one of those movies I've said a hundred times 
you just got to go with it. And if you can just not ask questions every fight, like, oh, well, wait a minute, how did that? You'll enjoy the movie. The second you start asking that many questions about these type of movies, you're doing yourself a disservice because none of those questions can ever be answered. You know, th- this type of movie, you it can be answered in the context of the film, sure, and and that's kind of what you got to go with. And I think this movie does it perfectly, where they give you absolutely enough. You don't need to see a schematic how things work or any of that. You just get the idea of the paranoia of it all, and and sort of, oh my god, maybe this is my fault, or maybe that I'm crazy. Like it, it's just, it really, really works. And I mean. It's so funny. I, I remember the trailer for this movie, and because they really lean on Brad Pitt for the trailer. And there's the great scene where you know Bruce Willis is at the the big like banquet dinner or whatever, and he leaves, and it's Brad Pitt at the top of the stairs, like, "Do you realize where he thinks he comes from?" And that is still such an effective scene because it's just Brad Pitt again going to the full ten against. Almost like a, like I said, a wounded animal or even a wounded child, Bruce Willis, and got Brad Pitt, who was just fucking with him the whole time. Like I, I even forget the, you know, oh, this is my good friend and whatever fucking weird name he gives him, <laughs> and, he, and he's like, now fuck off, fuck off, constantly tell everybody go fuck off. Like he's just, it's it's such a great little moment. And once again, making like Willis and Pitt such like fascinating characters where they're like so unreadable at times of just like where are we going with this house is going like particularly when we do like as it unravels with brad pitt you are like oh my god is he gonna unleash the virus what's gonna happen and they pull that initial twist on you of like oh christopher Plummer put himself out of the equation so it's like oh i guess it's not gonna happen here it's he was a red herring but then it turns up actually affecting everything because oh who do you give those codes to fucking david morse who's gonna go out and just spread them all over the place it's it does such a great job with like once again the, the kind of like back and forth of like oh is the future saved oh no maybe it isn't and then leading up to the ending, which is, like, I love the use of, like, the dream sequences throughout of, like, Bruce Willis' younger self seeing um, the various different versions and how it's like, oh, is it Brad Pitt, actually, or is it David Morris that I saw got shot? Oh, no, it's actually me getting shot there. And then the scene on the plane, which is apparently a big controversial point with, like, uh, Terry Gilliam and the studio. What is your interpretation of that particular scene where the one scientist meets David Morris on the plane? What do you think happens from there? I think that's ground zero. I think that's when the virus gets released. I think that's how it starts. And I think uh, that's, I mean, I, I, I honestly think it's that simple of an explanation. Because see, I definitely thought that the first time I saw this and then rewatching again, I just realized, oh, it can be that. Or it's also a thing of like, oh, actually Cole's mission was worth it because the scientist actually was able to find that specific pinpoint and go back and actually find a source for the virus so they could bring it uh, to the future you know, for a cure. That's actually probably more accurate. I, yeah, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. But the thing is, I think there's enough ambiguity to where it could be either or. And I think that's a great example of one of those endings, where it's like, it could be either or thing happen. It could be there's no hope after this, or it could be there is a safe point. I think the scene is written just vague enough. And there still is, at the same time, the element of like her saying insurance. Like, oh, I'm an insurance. Which could either be like, oh, she's actually a fraud from the past who wants to keep the future in this desolate time you know where she ends up being like this scientist who's like one of the main upper elite um or it could be she's like disguising herself as an insurance agent it could be either or yeah 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 god look at you jeez like you've seen a- the, the, the ending of 12 monkeys explained video <laughs> like it's subscribe <laughs> It's gonna be you like hold your cheeks like oh I'm, like so surprised 
<laughs> Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate it. Subscribe to my Patreon and my Twitch streams are right over here. Hey, by the um, way, have you guys heard of Blue Apron? It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> great Shadow Legends. Great game. You know, you can get... <laughs> Oh, good God. You're driving me mad, Adam, with the Raid yeah. Shadow Legends pulls. It's so good. Well, you okay, know, well. you sign up with our code, you get an exclusive champion. <laughs> we are not sponsored, but please, Raid Shadow Legends, we'll yeah, promote we, the we, fuck we, out of you. Yeah, promote the fuck out of you. <laughs> please sponsor us. <laughs> oh, Adam, we gotta keep going here. We have a whole other movie to talk about that's also oh, very maddening. But um, let's do our final thoughts here on 12 Monkeys, especially where is this rank for you amongst uh, the Willis filmography? This is such a weird Willis movie. It's unlike anything he's did before or since, I'd argue. I love this movie. I've loved it since I saw it. Maybe not my favorite Bruce Willis performance. Uh, we'll get to that later. Not in the next movie, but later we'll get to that. But it's, it's definitely up there in my top three uh, Bruce Willis performances. This is easily a four and a half or a five, you know, if I was to rate it type of movie for me. I, this is just, as, as we've coined the phrase, an Adam movie from top to bottom through look, aesthetic, acting, cinematography, story, everything. I, I just, I think this is one of those perfect little, was championed at the time and mostly forgotten gems of a film uh yeah i would say this is top five willis for me i would still say previously mentioned movies like die hard and breakable and sixth sense and also pulp fiction obviously are like it's hard to compete with those but 12 monkeys i think sits comfortably with those other great movies i think it's i agree that i think it is a bit more underrated in his filmography um i think it's also one of terry gilliam's better movies i kind of wished he had done a few more movies more in this vein as opposed to, like, you know, I like some of the stuff he did afterward, like Fear and Loathing, but in terms of mainstream filmmaking, the only other one I think he kind of attempts is Brothers Grimm, which is uh, not the best turn for him uh, in terms of trying to do that. But um, I think 12 Monkeys does such a great job with, like I mentioned, stack cast, perfectly written screenplay, and just a great sense of, like, that ambiguity about a character. It's a thing where, like, it's weird going back to, like, a studio big budget movie starring big movie stars that has this much fascinating ambiguity to it. You don't get that kind of shit anymore. You don't get a movie where your main hero is an unhinged animal and you're like, I don't know where it's gonna where this guy might fucking fall. He's uh, unsettling to me. And I think Willis is one of those guys where despite being a big movie star, he could also really bring it on a dramatic level when he wanted to that's unnerving and tragic and engaging the entire time. Wonderful, wonderful performance from him and a great movie overall. But, to contrast with that, we have our bad feature to go into now, Hudson Hawk. Bruce Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, tough guy. And business <laughs> is booming. I was afraid you weren't going to drop by. Hudson Hawk. That excites me. Check, please. The best cat burglar that ever lived. I didn't want to do it. All I wanted was a cappuccino. But he can't retire. Maybe nobody told you. I quit stealing. If he wants to keep on living. Watch your step. Hold your breath. Hang on for dear life. And catch the hawk. Good plan, Junior. Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell. Hudson Hawk. Sounds like a party. So, Hudson Hawk, 
came out May 24th, 1991, and is one of the few movies of Bruce Willis, it's actually the only movie Bruce Willis has a screenwriting credit on. Gee, I wonder fucking why. Right, because this was a passion project for him. He really wanted to do this, and he, this is basically like his blank check after making, as I mentioned, 800 million fucking dollars off of the two Look Who's Talking and two Die Hard movies that had come out prior to this. So this is him fully just like taking advantage of that huge cred and making this weird movie that has various different tones to it, but is ostensibly about a master thief that Willis plays, um, who goes on a wild adventure. I picked this, even though I had not seen it before, mainly because it's an infamous uh, sort of Hollywood disaster story of sorts. It did not do very well, at least stateside. The budget was $65 million, and only ended up making $17 million in the U.S., but ended up making overall worldwide $97 million, so kind of vaguely breaking even <laughs> um, based on that. Um, and I think I kind of get why it did it a lot better overseas, because watching this movie... It has shades of, like, a, a lot of weird kind of, like, uh, foreign, almost, like, big Hong Kong action movies in particular. It has elements of that, but also elements of, like, um, Saturday morning cartoons and old, like, thief movies and stuff. It basically feels like it's a movie made out of all of the stuff Bruce Willis used to watch on television as a kid. Just put in a blender, and this came out of it. And, um, Adam, had you seen Hudson Hawk before? Uh, No. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, it's one of those movies, again, its reputation was huge. I thought I knew what was in the film. I was completely fucking wrong. Uh, so no, I hadn't seen it before. So when it was chosen, that's why I was kind of like, oh, fuck, I, I bet we're in for a ride. But I was hoping it was going to be one of those where I'd watch it and be like, it's not good, but at least it's like so bad it's good. And I, I can't say that on this one. Uh, I think this is, for me, one of the worst movies I've had to watch for this show. It is just such a fucking ego parade on screen. And, and, and as I messaged you privately, if it were anybody else but Bruce Willis, and because of that $800 million he made, and because of what a burgeoning big star he was, this movie would have instantly killed everybody's career that had anything to do with this movie. It is so fucking just disjointed and and just frankly dumb. It's not funny. It's not exciting. I give a shit about the romance angle. The fucking singing musical stuff is just so leaning into, look, I can also sing Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. It's just James Coburn doing fake kung fu noises. Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, like, get the... Sandra Bernhard especially. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. David Caruso, you fucking... You fuck you. Um, it's just... There's... This is just such a, a perplexing film in so many ways. Like, is he trying to make a slick jazz-type movie? Is he trying to make this thief worldwide adventure movie? Is he trying to make a live-action cartoon? I think he's trying to do all of them, and that recipe for a good movie that does not make. Um, while I do agree that a good movie does not make, um, I think a very fascinating 
not at all boring movie it absolutely makes because i think that's the thing watching this it's it's one of those movies like we've, we've talked about this with stuff like cats for example that's the most recent example of like a movie where hollywood put a bunch of money into it and it's just like yeah go ahead and do whatever and we were both as we said on a previous episode where we covered that movie we're just like what this is fucking like you mentioned perplexing this movie has a similar uh kind of vibe to it but i would say less perplexing the adjective i would describe this movie has is unstable like throughout the entire movie it is like breaking at the seams to a degree that i find so fascinating because like you mentioned he's trying to do like oh is this uh, a cartoon live action is this a thief movie is this like a secret agent movie it's going through all these various different things and i find that so inherently like less so bad it's good uh bad and more of like that train wreck bad that we've talked about many times we're just like i'm i am stunned this is happening (laughs) on screen so i i was never like bored with and i could never say it's like one of the worst movies we've covered for the show because if nothing else like we've covered like such fucking like boring dull bland movies on this show like fucking last week we did carlito's way rise to power (laughs) we're just like what the fuck is even happening i don't even give any kind of a shit and i'm just bored the whole time this movie i'm just like okay movie sure do some other bullshit okay this is at least like fucking fascinating to see i'm i am just like captivated by the failure of this movie (laughs) but i'm not surprised by the failure of this movie in any way no no not at all no (laughs) no 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 I mean, I guess I could say I did find myself checking out a couple times, but I wasn't like super bored. Like it wasn't like falling asleep. Oh, I can't wait till it's over. I definitely was wondering where the fuck this is going to go. It's just there's so much dumb shit in between trying to get it to where it's going. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know, man. I, nah. I mean, look, I, I'm not invested in fucking the, the journey of Hudson Hawk necessarily. I think you are. I think you're dying for a sequel. I think uh, you want the you want the prequel. To go well, to on an unrelated note, check my uh, change.org petition to get the yeah. sequel to Hudson Hawk. Shia LaBeouf and Hudson Hawk. Oh, uh, no. Oh, no. God. No, I don't <laughs> no. want that for a lot of Ezra Miller, Hudson Hawk. Uh, no, anyways. <laughs> I'll say this much. I think the movie had a major disservice with separating Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis like halfway through. I think despite what you were talking about, like the, the fucking, um, the big overlap, like musical number thing where basically there's a point where him and Danny Aiello go and try and do a job at an auction house where they steal this horse statue. So they're like, Oh, how do we steal it? Well, their technique is to sing a musical jazz standard and time it to the exact second. Cause Bruce Willis knows to the second how long these tracks fucking go. So they sing it to that level letters so they can eventually rob and perfectly plot every single step around that which makes absolutely no sense but i think there's a weird brazenness to that and like most of the stuff in this movie where it just is like yeah we're gonna do that and you're gonna fucking watch it and it's just like okay sure keep going to like this movie never stops it is like um about like an hour 35 minutes long and there is no point where they pause to give you any kind of breath just like oh we're going to the next thing next thing next thing fuck you keep going keep going there's this it's this weird stream of consciousness movie that just goes from one bizarre set piece to the next and just switches genre from like shot to shot 
just we'll go from like oh a big elaborate musical number high sequence to um a big like funny back and forth but like oh hey you you fat Daniela what are you talking about hey what well, we're going back and forth and then oh no we have to drop in literally drop Bruce Willis into a mob thing that happens where a guy gets horribly murdered in front of him and like gory detail like what yeah what yep, are we doing? Here, here comes Frank Stallone Yes, as the, one of the Mario Brothers, which is a lot of Nintendo jokes, because it's 1991, and that was a new thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> About that. But you don't find even that kind of like weird stream of consciousness at least fascinating at all, Adam? I mean, I find the whole movie fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I, I find the whole idea behind this like fascinating to where you know, somebody can become such a big star that they're just kind of like giving carte blanche to do whatever the fuck they want, and this is what you get. And he's such a big star that nobody at the studio or anything was like, ah, wait a minute. Like, that's what's fascinating to me about this type of movie. And, you know, there's other movies like it, too, to where they bankroll so much. I mean, obviously, that doesn't happen anymore. I don't think we have that anymore to where a certain personality can get a whole sort of project built around them and they have to say and how it works i, I think that era is unless dead. they're like someone who's a bigger producer like say brad pitt who has his own fucking production company where he bankrolls true shit. but even then though you know when brad pitt does that or even tom cruise does that with certain movies and stuff you know that aren't the mission possible movies the marketing behind them is never really there the you know it's never pushed like it's going to be a big thing it's almost like like all right he's he's contracted to do three mission possible movies so we'll give him this so he does it, but the, the studio never really feels behind it anymore. Uh, where this, I remember the commercials for this movie. I remember the advertising for this movie. I remember this movie, you know, the the promotional posters where it was like Hudson Hawk and him swinging on the rope. Like uh, this movie was a huge sort of like marketing thing. They really tried. They were also selling it as more of an action movie because he had come off of Die Hard. Like the trailer you all heard earlier in the episode is like, catch the hawk if you can. Yeah, yeah. Like, and there's like a couple to... like wisecracky bits like he does in Die Hard. It doesn't lean into the like, you know, the, the like I said, the Kung Fu and James Coburn where he's slapping him repeatedly back and forth for like three minutes. Or the the villainous gang that's all named after different candy bars, like David Caruso, who you mentioned, who is mute for some reason, uh, Andrew yeah. Bernarski, who's Butterfingers, who is yeah. the most incompetent CIA agent I've ever seen, um, or Lorraine Toussaint was the weird one, is Almond Joy. I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's yeah, crazy. and then whoever Snickers was, too, I, I've seen him in a hundred things, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Harvey is his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just... I, I, it's a fascinating movie, like I said, because it is full ego on display. Mm-hmm. This movie is Bruce Willis, like, look how fucking cool I am. I can also sing. I'm into jazz music. Look at my earrings. I like cappuccino. I can be current. Every girl wants me, especially if this nun wants me. Uh, it, it's just, it's very much a sort of self flatulation movie. Uh, and for that, it's very fascinating. And also for that is the reason why it doesn't work at all. No, right. And you mentioned Nanny McDowell's character of the nun, who I will say, I think most of the other people in this movie are going brazenly for whatever they're going for. I don't think yeah, it really fits she doesn't conclusively. Know what the hell she's doing. No, she looks kind of lost, and it's a shame. Because oh. I, I like Nanny McDowell when she's able to be like kind of like a more natural, like in, oh, yeah. person, like, like in Groundhog Day. She's so charming. Yeah, of course. Right. As opposed to here, she's just kind of like, I don't know, especially like considering the original choice for that role was Isabella Rossellini. Wait, makes way more sense. 
that makes more sense, but I don't I don't think there would have been chemistry there either. I don't think there would have been necessarily chemistry, but she would have fit like this kind of zany, weird cartoon yeah. movie more, right? As as opposed to McDowell does. But I think uh, Dana Yellow and Bruce Willis were like actual friends who like Bruce wanted to make a movie with him, and I think they have like a fun banter back and forth. I don't think the lines are that funny, but I think they're actually like very charming together. Even the swing on the star thing is like it's nonsensical and it's bizarre. But at the same time, I think they're both very committed to that dumb bit of just like, let's sing while we make a fucking heist happen, <laughs> which makes no sense and ends up getting them immediately captured. But like that, and then later on when they're shooting that fucking weird grenade weapon <laughs> and they're fucking singing side by side, it's just like, okay, they're, they're, they're fully going for it. Even like, you know, you mentioned Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt. I agree that I don't like those villain characters necessarily, but I think they're going for it, which I think makes it much more interesting than I think it would have been in the hands of somebody who wasn't in. I think they're going very over the top in a way that fits that movie. All right. I'll agree with you that in maybe another project, or even if this one was altered to it, I think we could have had something fun with the sort of a Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, like buddy piece or whatever you want to call it. Because clearly that's the one thing they are having a good time, whether it's not done school or not, they are having fun and it's obvious. And I, I think they do have, some sort of chemistry together just the dialogue's terrible but still whatever so maybe if the movie was leaned a little bit more into that instead of daniel basically a third of the movie just becoming a recurring character here and there it would have worked a little more uh yeah richard grant i i I always like richard grant i mean and he is going for it and he's being silly and wacky sandra bernhardt is just nails on a chalkboard for me always has been even in this uh she's yes she's trying she is trying, I'll give you that, but she doesn't even have the ability to make it believable. I don't think anyone's interested in making this believable. <laughs> no, no, not that, that, but I'm saying even somebody like, okay, like a Richard Grant or even a Dana Aiello, they got this script, they got the same bad dialogue, but at least it, they're trying even, you know, they, let's put it this way, they're more talented, I guess. To be just completely crude and, and sort of mean, they're more talented than Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra Bernhardt just does not have chops to even make this terrible dialogue even somewhat work this it it just is such a fucking crazy bizarre passion project movie that i i just let's put it this way the reputation it has it earned and i think it could garner even more reputation it's such a crazy weird movie if people would give it a chance right yeah but you're saying it's also one of the worst movies we've covered on the show because it's fucking terrible i'd never watch it again (laughs) (laughs) i i mean i don't know because like i i think when i think of like the worst ones done for the show once again i think it's just like more boring bland things as opposed to like at any second we're going to get something weird. Like, this movie starts off with fucking Leonardo da Vinci, like, making an alchemy no, Yeah, the boring, the boring, bland ones don't even qualify for me for the worst of the the show, because I don't remember them. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'm going to remember Hudson Hawk. Yeah. I'm also going to remember how fucking mad it made me feel. You know, like, if we really went into the worst ones, like, Chun-Li, Legend of Street Fighter would be in there. I don't remember a fucking thing about that movie. Mm-hmm. Not a thing. I know it was bad, but bleh, what are you going to say? But like Wired, I'll always remember. Hudson Hawk, I'm always going to remember. Oogie Loves, for better or fucking worse. I'll always remember. <laughs> so it, it definitely fits in that, like, this is such a fucking misfire, misstep of a movie to where I can't give it points for being like intru- like so bad it's good. I can't. But I can give it points for being just such a 
weird time capsule of an event. Yeah, and I mean, I would say even there are moments where I think it's kind of clever. In the middle of this, like, random stupid bullshit. Like, I love the bit where Bruce Willis is on the gurney on the street and he has to go through the, the fucking toll booth. He's like, exact change! And he has to pull that out and throw it into the... I think that's the thing is, when a movie like this throws everything at the kitchen sink, I think it provides some fascinating, weird moments that are occasionally actually kind of clever. Like, I like the transitions that happen. Like, there's the point where after they jump from the first thing, uh, Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis, the first heist... And and they jump and immediately transitions into him dropping in literally into the fucking apartment of that one mobster guy. That's a great, weird cartoonish transition. Or even like after the one heist that Bruce Willis does by himself and he jumps off the truck and he lands right in front of fucking Andy McDowell at the like outdoor restaurant or whatever. I think there's a lot of like clever, creative, weird shit that's going on. I don't think it all works together. I think it's a massive disaster of a movie. But at the same time, I think it has this like creative, earnest energy that makes it far better than like some of the really worst ones done for the show. Not good necessarily, but ambitious to a fascinating fault. You're writing fanfic about this right now, aren't you? Well, I mean, I had to put down all that erotic fanfiction I was doing about Carlito's way. Rise yeah. to power. Don't worry, I got you covered on that. Chapter. <laughs> Chapters, my man. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I just I, I agree that I think this was infamous at the time, and I think it deserves kind of like that weird, bizarre, like kind of like oh, a movie star just putting all of their fucking chips on the table at like kind of reputation it has. But at the same time, I can still appreciate little fun things. Like I love near the end when Daniel comes back and after he should have fucking died, and they're just like, "But how could you have survived that airbags? Can you fucking believe it? But what about the explosion uh, sprinkler system? Can you fucking believe it?" Bruce Willis literally says like the modus operandi for the movie. We're just like, "Yeah, that's that what happened." <laughs> I think this movie knows it's fucking insane. <laughs> yes, I think this movie is definitely trying to be this weird slapsticky, you know, comedy caper movie. It's it definitely knows what it's trying to be, but I don't think it succeeds on any level. I think it's it's halfway there on every single level it's trying to uh, trying to reach. Right. I think we're both saying the same thing. I just find it more entertaining <laughs> in its fucking like bizarre decisions. And especially, I guess, like, a lot of this, I've talked about this many times, when we've, like, seen modern bad movies in particular, like, they're big-budget, massive, awful movies that are just kind of, like, big CG drivel machines. I kind of miss interesting failures like this. I, I will agree with you on that. This is a big, weird, unique swing and a miss. But there's nothing else like it. Right. So at least it's not just Moonfall or bullshit that we've seen a thousand times. At least it's something original. doesn't work. But at least it's it's something different. Right. Because like I said, like the, from the opening bit where I had no idea about this fucking movie, it opens up with just like eons ago, Leonardo da Vinci made an alchemy machine that could replace gold, that could make gold, basically. And, and then they put comes, worse makeup on that fucking guy playing Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, what are you talking about? So authentic. I, did, I thought it was so into history. Yeah. <laughs> Notably, the at the opening, the narration is done by a guy named William Conrad, who was famous for previous to this, he did the narration for like Rocky and Bullwinkle. And yep. you can tell just like, oh, that's what this movie's fucking going for. It's going for like this like bizarre brazen cartoon universe where nothing really makes sense. Which is like I said, interesting, if not wholly successful. And I think that's the thing is as the only movie with Bruce Willis's writing credit on it, it does kind of feel like in a similar way to say Nothing But Trouble. It, where that was the total, like, only time you got a full view into Dan Aykroyd's weird mind. This is that for Bruce Willis. 
Like he's just like, oh, this is the weird movie that he would that he spent all of his goodwill at being massively successful with. Just like Bruce, what do you want to do? Uh, but this heist movie, great. You want me to tell you more? No, just do the heist movie. He's like, well, I'll give you the heist movie. I'll give you a lot of other shit with that. I that's that I find extremely fascinating, and you feel this feels like sort of the window into Bruce's weird psyche at the time. Yes. Thousand percent. This movie, look, dude, Hudson Hawk in this movie is, you know, irresistible to women. He always figures the job out. He's got the best taste in music. He knows every song. He can pull off any job given to him. He loves exotic things. Everybody knows him. He's the coolest guy in the world. This is what Bruce Willis thought he was at the time. And that's it. I mean, that's literally what it is. Bruce Willis is playing a heightened version of himself. Or his own self-image, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's a hun- it's obvious. And the thing is, like I said, that's what kind of makes the movie fascinating. Again, that this guy who is just running unchecked at this point is a- given carte blanche to make a fucking giant Hollywood movie, and this is what you get. Like what? What? Like don't get me wrong. It, you know, I'm sure there's people who would do a lot worse things. But it's still just such an interesting thing and, and probably the start of the downfall of that happening. Because what's the last one that you can honestly think of where, you know, it happens all the time where, you know, they'll do three movies so they can do their pet project or whatever. It's that constant, you know, sort of uh, a blank phrase. check. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the blank. Check. Right, right. What's the last one you think of that was actually super successful and worked? Um, in terms of a super successful one, yeah, there's not that many. That's 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 what's so interesting about those projects is that oftentimes they are just like these weird, bizarre passion projects that rarely make any money. And yet they keep trying to do them, but they don't do them as often. I don't think as they did pre this movie. It's like you mentioned earlier that that kind of thing is very much gone from modern Hollywood system. If they do happen, it's like something much more smaller scale on a streaming service that completely disappears as opposed to one that lingers in the public consciousness like a Hudson Hawk. Like you mentioned, like this movie became a fucking punchline. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, think about it, Thomas. I mean, really, when you think about it, we're almost 10 years apart. Yes. And you, you know, know of Hudson Hawk. I know of Hudson Hawk. Like, I was, this movie came out in 91, right? Right. Right. I was eight years old when this movie came out, and I remember it. You know, you were barely born. I was not alive. I was not alive when this movie came out. And yet, you know what Hudson Hawk is. I mean, right. That is exactly it. You know, those other ones are going to fall to the way. Like, nobody's going to remember fucking Cherry. Who the the Jesus Christ. And if you do, go see somebody. But it's just that, again, that's what makes this movie so unique. I hate it. I fucking hate it. But I understand its sort of cultural prominence and how you know, you are fascinated by it and everything because it is such a weird idea. It's a weird thing that does not happen anymore. It's a perfect time capsule movie. Yeah, time capsule, especially of like, we should mention one of the producers is Joel Silver, who bankrolled a lot of those kind of movies at this time. It feels like it's kind of, right, it feels like it's one of those like big infamous 90s ones that he bankrolled and kind of either went really successful or horribly failed. Ate shit on a lot of those. 
Right, he did. Um, but yeah, I think you had final thoughts there, Adam, unless you have anything else to add, possibly, about Hudson Hawk. Uh, no, to, I mean, just to expand, I mean, it's a time capsule of the year amount. It's a time capsule of the star involved. And it's also one of the last grasp of these studio bankrolled movies on just a celebrity name alone. But yeah, it's uh, it's terrible. It's on Netflix. Don't watch it. Well. If you have any kind of fascination with train wreck movies, I would recommend watching it. Um, not necessarily expecting, like I said, it's not a good movie, but I would say it is an incredibly fascinating movie that I would personally say I was never bored watching Hudson Hawk because it just goes from one weird left turn to the next that I find extremely fascinating and find that, you know, we just don't get weird failures like this anymore in a way that I find incredibly entertaining in its own very bad way i think doing this show has poisoned my mind to the degree just like well this is bad but it's interesting (laughs) i think that's the problem that we're clearly displaying here uh but i i still find it like you know interesting nothing else for just the fact that bruce willis not only came up with this idea and was created as a screenwriter on it but would change things on set in a way that, like, most other, like, big stars would not be able to do. It's just like, yeah, let's have it, we do this and this thing. I think it's a movie that feels, once again, unstable. Like, at any point, this movie's gonna fucking completely fall apart and not even exist as a movie. The reels are gonna break on the projector, or your Netflix is gonna completely shut down (laughs) while you're trying to watch it. But I find that kind of unstable filmmaking fascinating, if not, once once again, good. So I would say it's one of, not the worst bad movies we've done for the show, but one of the more interesting train wrecks we've ever covered on the show uh, but now it's time we do our uh, weekly segment the double redo double redo double redo double redo double redo double redo double 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 redo So the double redo every single week, Adam and I bring to the table uh, two good and two bad movies based around the topic in question, in this case, Bruce Willis. So we'll be uh, coming here basically with the best possible double feature of two movies and worst possible double feature uh, related to Mr. Bruce Willis. And uh, I'm starting here. And so I will uh, go ahead and start off with my two good picks. First, uh, the older one that came out around the same time as Hudson Hawk, actually. I have The Last Boy Scout, which is a Shane Black written script, another Joel Silver production that also had a sort of infamous production history, a lot of like infighting, particularly with like Bruce Willis and uh, Shane Black and even the director Tony Scott uh, and Damon Wayans, the other star. And it's basically the story about um, Bruce Willis plays this private detective who is trying to um, in- investigate about the murder of this woman, played by Halle Berry, that happens near the opening of the movie. And her boyfriend, who is this former famous football player, played by Damon Wayans, is uh, along for the ride, is basically the, the buddy to Bruce Willis' detective character. And it's a very Shane Black script, lots of like funny back and forth um, between the two characters. There's, I'm mean, it's the early 90s, there's some jokes that haven't hold up quite that well, they're a bit dated, uh, but there still is like a great banter and also a very interesting story about basically like corruption of what would be the NFL um, with uh, like a lot of the um, backstory and the, a lot of the reveals that happen. It's an interesting story just about like professional sports uh, while at the same time being this great crime action movie with like it's so well shot by tony scott it's a really fun i think another underrated one because it wasn't very successful when it came out kind of got lost in the shuffle between the like the second and third diehard movies for bruce willis i think it's a really fun one um and then 
the more recent good one I have is from, uh, I mentioned 2012 was a, like the last really great year for Willis in terms of uh, his performances with Looper was one of the ones that was really great. It's not my recommendation though, because my other one is Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie where it's a big ensemble cast and it's basically about these two young kids in the 1960s uh, and uh, corresponding as pen pals and they decide, you know, we don't like our home lives so we're going to leave and run away together in this small island community. They've run away off into the like outstretches of the coasts of the island and uh, the entire community, which consists of a lot of you know, familiar people to Wes Anderson movies like Edward Norton and Bill Murray and Francis McDormand are all trying to search for him. And also the main sort of police island person on there played by Bruce Willis. And it feels weird that he would be in a Wes Anderson movie. He doesn't feel like he'd be necessarily the top choice, but it is such a funny performance from Willis. It's probably his last really great comedy performance, I would say, with such like funny bits, like particularly when they find out that, like, one of the kids is in a foster parent situation and they call the foster parents who say, like, oh, no, I don't think we're going to invite him back over here. Uh, we, I, I think the boy, you know, he has a good heart, but I don't think he's going to be able to come back. And Bruce Willis is like, you're not going to invite him back? What the fuck am I supposed to do with that? And it's such a funny Bruce Willis delivery, and it's a, a, a great mix of, like, his over-the-top comedic moments, but overall it's very sedated, kind of, like, familiar to his, uh, like, M. Night Shyamalan dramatic performances at the same time. It's such a good stellar turn from him and a really fun ensemble, like Wes Anderson comedy. He really stands out as like sort of the, the performance of like, oh my God, I didn't expect this out of him because it's not over the top, but it's also like really funny and earnest. It's, it's a really, really great performance from him. Um, and then the two bad ones I have, um, you know, speaking of like the early 90s period for Willis, I have uh, what I think is a much bigger example of like a disastrous Hollywood awful turn that has been documented several times. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities from uh, director Brian De Palma. It's an infamous satiric bomb of a movie that's about basically uh, Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffith play these like rich yuppie socialites who end up running over uh, a young black teen and that causes a big stir about, like, classism and some other stuff. And Bruce Willis plays the reporter who's investigating it. It's based on, like, a best-selling novel by Tom Wolfe that ended up becoming, like, this movie that had an infamous, terrible production. And it's just so miscast all around. Like, getting Tom Hanks to play an unlikable yuppie character doesn't make any sense in 1990. And then Bruce Willis is the reporter guy. You can tell that, like, he there were a lot of infamous stories about him, like, really being uncooperative on the set and really disliking it. And Brian De Palma also went so over the top with like the production budget and stuff like that and just end up being an infamous Hollywood disaster I think a much less engaging one than Hudson Hawk and for good reason it's probably my least favorite Brian De Palma movie and then the other bad one I have is the one that I ended up vetoing using my veto on finally for last week of 16 blocks which I want to say that I don't think this is actually the worst possible Bruce Willis movie Rewatching it, I because I did right after we did the picking, I'm like, you know what, I should probably revisit this. Um, I will say, I think there's a lot of good elements to it, where basically, if you don't know it, Bruce Willis plays this cop who is trying to uh, bring, uh, he's assigned by his captain to take an inmate uh, from 16 blocks from one prison to the courthouse so he can testify, and uh, he ends up running into his former partner, who is also another big shot at the police department, played by David Morse, who we just talked about earlier, um, who ends up being a dirty cop, and he's trying to make sure that uh, the person who has been incarcerated does not testify, so he ends up uh, ratting out his friend who killed a young black teen and all this other stuff. There's a lot of interesting elements to it. It's Richard Donner's last movie. I think he has some 
like solid directorial stuff there. I think David Morris and Bruce Willis are pretty good in it. I think there's a world where this movie could have worked, if not for, I think, the big problem that sinks this movie, so unfortunately. Um, most deaf, as he was known at the time, he's now known as Yasin Bey, um, is fucking awful in this movie. I would genuinely say his performance as the inmate who's being like led around by Bruce Willis is one of the most grating, awful performances I've seen in the movie. He does the stuttering that I think is unbearable to listen to, and he constantly just like fucks up, but not in the way where like, oh, he gets better by the end of the movie, really. He's just like such an idiot who causes all the major problems of the fucking movie at every single turn. It's such a it's a poorly written character, it's a really bad performance from Yasin Bay. It's just like such a grating, awful turn that it just sinks a movie that could have been pretty fun into just like one of the like more like relatable at least Bruce Willis performances at the beginning when he's totally annoyed by this kid and doesn't want to deal with him I wish he'd just like been true to form and just letting like yeah fuck this kid just get him over 16 blocks and don't fucking talk to him anymore it's it's such a grating awful performance and such a bummer because there could have been a good movie in this but I think that performance is deadly and just one of the worst I've seen, especially in, like, one of these, like, buddy movies with, like, Bruce Willis. He's done that with so many other people. Um, and I think that may be my least favorite in terms of just, like, an actual screen partner for Willis. It's a deadly poisonous performance for that movie. Okay, so I have seen two of your four. I have not seen Moonrise Kingdom. It is actually my one blank spot. Everybody tells me I need to. Your one blank spot for Wes Anderson, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, except for Friends Dispatch. I haven't watched that yet either. Okay. But now I'm a little bit more interested. You know, here Bruce Willis doing more comedic stuff. Like, cool. I'll check it out. And then I've never saw Bonfire of the Vanities. I never had any interest in it. Uh, kind of the same reason for Hudson Hawk, why I kind of avoided it, the reputation alone. Uh, it's just, I, it's something that I never was like, oh, I'm curious to see why. Uh, and honestly, I don't think it's ever one that I'll, I'm going to go to and try to dissect and figure out what the problems are with it. I think it's pretty evident. Unless somebody picks it for the show at some point. Well, if you pick it within the next three weeks, then I'll uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh 16 blocks. Yeah, I completely understand. I, I, I completely understand your your issues with it. Yes, Yasin Bay, formerly known as Mostef, is fucking terrible in it. Um, but I still think it's a pretty solid movie. Reminds me of like the old Clint Eastwood movie, The Gauntlet. Uh, I, I just think it's kind of fun, gritty, old school, you know, Bronson, Clint Eastwood type of movies. Uh, it just is unfortunate that the sort of buddy comedy aspect of it, it falls very, very flat. And Last Boy Scout, love, love Last Boy Scout. I'm not even going to sit here and try to pick it apart. I think Last Boy Scout is super fun. Uh, is there faults in it? Sure. But other than that, hey, who cares? It's just, it's great. It's such a silly, dirty Tony Scott action movie that I just love to death. Now, for my picks, uh, I have the aforementioned Unbreakable. Uh, we've covered it on the show. We've mentioned it several times this episode alone. So without getting too far into it, it's just, it's my opinion, Shyamalan's best movie, uh, probably Bruce Willis's best performance and, uh, you know, hot take best superhero origin movie possibly ever. Uh, it's just a very, very solid, solid film. 
great Bruce Willis performance, great Robin Wright, great Sam Jackson. Um, and then I have Hostage for my other good pick. It's not like reinventing the wheel or anything like that, but it's a very taut thriller. It's super action-packed, uh, very tense. Bruce Willis is great in it. Really good Ben Foster. He's terrifying in it. Uh, it's just a solid little movie. It, it's basically a cast of five to ten people and all in one environment, and it's it's fun. It's nothing amazing but for a nice little watch if you haven't seen it before i think you'll have a good time with it and for my bad i have the surrogates which is a sci-fi movie based on comic book uh if you know if you've seen gamer with gerard butler then you've kind of seen the surrogates or even some of like the new matrix movie like it's just such a fucking cliche thing you've seen a thousand times done to really kind of piss poor degree not a lot of story behind any character other than the bare minimum like oh a husband loves his wife was detective did bad thing trying to get back okay we got it all right fine great and then i have what i think is one of the worst uh sort of family friendly movies and i picked disney's the kid for this one terrible film uh you know spencer breslin just unlikable as a kid bruce willis horrible toupee doesn't want to be there you can tell it's sort of his last gasp of being still like marketable for families and it just it really falls short it's a terrible terrible film uh well um i have seen um most of your picks uh, obviously we talked about unbreakable um i have and i agree i think it's great i think it's my favorite like that and six cents are so close to me for favorite Shyamalan, and very close for willis as well um hostage i haven't seen um i hadn't heard that many good things about it so i'm curious maybe to visit that at some point um surrogates and the kid are both great examples of movies i know i have seen but i have very little memory of either of them and the most interesting about Disney's The Kid is the fact that they have to legally call it Disney's The Kid because yeah. of, like, the copyright thing with the Chaplin movie. Yep, great. I love that. It's Disney's The Kid. <laughs> legally, it's Disney's The Kid. Legally, Disney's The Kid. Sir gets the only thing I really remember of that movie is there's a bit where Bruce Willis um, has, like, been separated from his wife after their kid died, and the way they portray that is through, like, him going into the kid's old room and finding the baseball glove because they played catch together. And that was like an early example of me being like, oh, wow, they're doing this bit? I've seen this before in movies. This is like such a fucking dumb bit. <laughs> it's like the most easy shorthand of like, oh, how do we get con- convey like, uh, there's a horrible tragedy. Uh, can't play catch with this kid anymore. <laughs> That's it. It was like hack Hollywood screenwriting bullshit oh, yeah. to convey that. They used to have a catch. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or there'll be a bike with a missing wheel resting in the garage. Right, yeah, and even, like, yeah. You, didn't even, you didn't even mention much, I know there's, like, the sci-fi story where it's, like, people can basically, like, inhabit the, like, they plug into a matrix of sorts and can plug into, like, robot versions of themselves. Like, there's a version where Bruce Willis has hair and it's, like, the worst-looking wig. Digitally de-aged Bruce Willis with a blonde wig. Right, it's really weird. And it's terrible. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Pretty bad. Uh, but, yeah, let's go ahead and just uh, repeat our titles, then. For our double reduced choices here, in case anybody missed them. Uh, for my two good, I had Moonrise Kingdom and The Last Boy Scout. And then for my two bad, I had Bonfire of the Vanities and 16 Blocks. All right. For my two good, I had Unbreakable and Hostage. 
for my bad, I had the surrogates and Disney's the kid. Yes, legally. Disney's the kid. Legally. Don't come after me. <laughs> oh, again, those guys holding the chapel and rights are going to sue your fucking ass. Big news to them. We got the Raid Shadow Legends lawyers on our side now. <laughs> come at us, bro. <laughs> the, the Raid Shadow Legends legal team will sue your ass into oblivion. Uh, but Fuck you, we Disney. Wanna... You're nothing compared to Raid Shadow Legends. <laughs> Oh my god, well, we need to thank some people and get out of here. Uh, we need to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water, that's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, uh, for all of his great stuff on Twitter, where you can find a link tree for all his great artwork. And we also want to thank our supporters on Patreon. We call them Edgelords over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get access to special bonus episodes uh, that we do, uh, that only patrons can hear. And uh, also, you can uh, vote in polls uh, that determine like either certain movies we cover, or even topics. And uh, for May, we have a pretty interesting topic, given it's the summer movie season. We're asking you all to uh, vote between us either covering the highest-grossing movies of all time, adjusted for inflation, uh, or the biggest box office bombs of all time. So we can either, you know, there are plenty of good and bad movies in either of those lists, and uh, we're curious to hear which ones you want us to cover. Yeah, I know which kind of one I'm pulling for. Uh, and biggest box office bombs, I think, would be more fun. But I also think that if we get the top rated ones and we could shit all over ones somebody loves, that's always fun too. <laughs> Adam loves destroying what you love. That's you know that's what he loves. Yeah, I'll tell you right now, Forrest Gump comes up. Maybe you know that's that's one we've wanted to cover. It'll be fascinating. Uh, but for more of our antics, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at dedbpod, and uh, also submit feedback to us double edge double bill at gmail.com all spelled out. Uh, find more of me on Twitter and Letterboxes at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Or you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of our audio antics, uh, please uh, follow us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other place where you can find podcasts. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network, or even dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like almost 200 episodes we did before we joined Talk Film Society. And if nothing else, if you can't uh, support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. The completely free way, though, to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility out there. Yeah, we really appreciate it. You know, there, there's a guy I make fun of every week, Christian Alvarez, but the fact of the matter is he is a patron and he does share a show, and I, I do really appreciate it. But uh, honestly, Christian, buddy, you know, we've, we've had a couple conversations the last couple weeks. It's been really nice to talk about movies. And, dude, from the heart of me, from, from the pit of my stomach, my soul, whatever you want to call it, I mean, honestly, bro, go fuck yourself. Oh, such a great gag. We love doing that. I mean, and now, it's time. You know what I mean? Everybody likes it. People respect it. They think it's good. It makes them want to contribute. 
to, to mock Christian Alvarez. Like, well, I could be like Christian Alvarez. He might mock me sometime. Yeah, you might tell me to go fuck myself. Oh, yeah. So it's a real honor. It's like Don Rickles. Zero fanfare involved, by the way. <laughs> That's why Raid Shadow Legends is like, oh, they might make fun of us on the show. Yeah. We got to sponsor yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, got to give it an exclusive champion of 200 crystals. Uh, Ray Challenge is the most funny fucking dumb internet thing that exists that somehow sponsors YouTube channels. It's so know. weird. It's so weird. <laughs> oh, well, Adam, we have to end this episode before we go too crazy here. And uh, the way we're going to do that is by doing our picking for next week's episode. Uh, next week, we'll be uh, doing something interesting. We'll be doing uh, mockumentary films, which was chosen uh, by our patrons. Uh, that'll be the topic. A lot of fascinating things we can cover with that, a comedy subgenre, which we haven't done much of. And basically, uh, you have the two bad picks for this particular topic. It's be like the switch up on the quality. And I have the two good. We pick a number between one and ten, and whenever that gets closest to of the other person's picks, gets us our good and our bad feature for the week. But first, Adam, for my two good choices, please pick a number between one and ten. Alrighty, I'm gonna go number eight. Okay, over at a number nine, I have a movie that bombed horribly at the box office, but I think uh, has gotten a bit more of a cult following because of the great creative team involved, including its star. I have pop star, never stop, never stopping. I was waiting for that at some point to come up on this show. Love that movie. Yes. Well, I have a lot to talk about with that. But on the other end of things, I had probably a more famous one that uh, I still really love. Probably my favorite of the various mockumentaries made by this particular director. I have over at number three, Best in Show. Oh, great movie. Yeah? Yeah, my favorite by him, too. Absolutely. Yes. Lots of fun ones. But now, Adam. All right, buddy. Deadly Curious. About these bad picks. This should be fascinating. So I'm going to pick... I'll go the opposite end of things. I'm going to go number two. All right. At number one, I had the Taron Killiam written and directed Killing Gunther, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and a bunch of other cast members. I did not know that was a mockumentary. I've heard of this movie. It is. Yeah, that it was one of the few Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of recent that just kind of came and went. So I I can't wait. I can't wait based on your enthusiasm to watch that one. And at number 10, on the flip side of your alternate best pick, I had Mascots. Oh, I've heard that one's pretty bad. Yep. (sighs) So no, what we're going for, um, it's Killing Gunther? Killing Gunther, yep. Right, Killing killing Gunther and Popstar Never Stop, Never Stopping. All right, very interesting. A double feature we'll have next week, but... Until that time, ladies and gentlemen, how can the same podcast happen to the same two guys 204 times? I mean, we've been doing it that long. I mean, are we trying to do a bit there? Because it, it, shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs>